Hi, welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Joseph Amenta, a film teacher and filmmaker whose terrific first feature, Soft, about three queer kids whose friendship is tested over one pivotal summer in Toronto, was one of my favorite Canadian films at TIFF last year. It kicks off its Canadian theatrical run right here at home at the Review Cinema this Friday, April 7th, and then opens in Winnipeg April 14th, in Calgary April 21st, and in Saskatoon on May 19th, with more bookings sure to come. You should see it. Joseph picked Tangerine, Sean Baker's 2015 breakout drama starring Kitana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor as Cinderella and Alexandra, two trans sex workers spending Christmas Eve in West Hollywood trying to figure out whether Cindy's boyfriend, who's also her pimp, has been cheating on her while she was locked up for 28 days. But that's not what the movie's really about. Tangerine pays attention to every detail of the lives of its characters and the world they live in, just so we can see them. Baker had been making movies for 15 years already, but this was the one where he figured out what he does best, and people noticed. This is someone else's movie. I I distinctly remember watching Tangerine for the first time. Uh, as an experience that, you know, was a first in, in cinema for me. It was a small theater at the Carlton Cinemas, and um, it was a recommendation. And I sat in this this theater with maybe three or four other people. It was a small, small room. And I was just taken by it. I was taken by how rough it was. I was taken by the journey. I was taken by the stilted performances and the energy um, and I found that it was teaching me the language that it was um, that it was creating through its world, through its characters, and it made me resist the urge to make judgments about it very quickly, very very quickly. Uh, and I found myself just in love with the characters and the small moments that it was presenting. By the end of it, it really impacted the way I created work from then on. It's funny. I've had a conversation very similar uh, about uh, Harmony Corinne's Gummo uh, with Ian Carpenter, who said like he just walked into it and was hit in the face with it and yeah. discovered it. And there mm. was another movie that he saw at the Carlton Blue Velvet uh, oh, yeah. years earlier that that did the same thing. That films that taught him how to watch them and and how to speak the language that they were speaking and. It's a really, it's fresh in my mind. And it's just, yeah, Tangerine does that too. I hadn't even thought about it in those terms. I think that it starts off presenting, I mean, even from the medium it's being shot on with the with the iPhone um, and those kind of vibrant, uh, you know, overly exposed colors. It just feels, it feels like you're watching something that almost doesn't belong in a cinema and your body is fighting it. You know, there's pretension in all of us that's fighting this this presentation of kind of, again, a little bit uh, campy performances, uh, kind of a bombastic presentation, um, even the conversation that the, the film opens with. Um, and you find yourself kind of creating a, a judgment of it. And I think it does that on purpose. It wants you to create that judgment so that it can slowly but surely dismantle it and make you fall in love with these two characters that you're on a journey with. Yeah, Baker, I hadn't thought about the gatekeeper analogy but it's making mm. us the gatekeepers mm-hmm. and then i realized of course that all of baker's movies are about this yes it, he's he's drawn towards not just outsiders and the fringes of uh what's conceived of as i suppose like middle class society but which is really just anyone with any kind of stability yeah and his loyalties are always with people who are on the verge of absolute collapse 
yes. homelessness, poverty, destitution, violence, over and over and over again. I'm still not sure how I feel about Red Rocket. Mm, uh, I haven't yes. seen it. I haven't seen it. Oh, I have not seen it. It's a movie that challenges your sympathies uh, I appreciate from, that, from the jump. Yeah. But I appreciate that. You know, I, I, I love an anti-hero because I feel like we were used to seeing anti-heroes in very specific bodies. And I'm actually developing a story right now that challenges this. Okay. We're used to seeing an anti-hero in very specific bodies because we're comfortable if that body is someone of power, someone of status, and they flip the switch on the audience. But when it comes from um, maybe a vulnerable body or you know a morally complex place, uh, where we are used to looking at those people with empathy and sympathy and um, m- maybe idealizing or tokenizing groups of people, when they present nuance with an action or a moral gray area, I think that, you know, it really creates a tantalizing experience for me as a viewer. It really pushes uh, diverse voices into a space of true authenticity displaying the human condition on camera and not just using people as a device or a guilt complex. And I love that. Ever since I've seen the, since I first saw the film in 2015, um, I was aware that it was a movie about trans sex workers, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's nothing, it's not, it's not a, it's not hiding anything about that, but watching it again, I was really surprised to see how, um, unambiguously the movie puts us in their world. There's no, like, there's no illusions. The, these characters know exactly who they are yeah. and there's no fronting. There's no pretense, no training wheels. Yeah. And it, it's up to us to keep up. And I was really surprised at how assured and confident that is right. Because the movie does, as you say, it looks like it wasn't made by professional hands. There's, mm-hmm. there's, it's not amateurish exactly, but when you say you shot your movie with three iPhones, you immediately are putting out the mm-hmm. image of, we just made this, like it just yeah. happened. Uh, and I think that's a great way of adjusting our brains to the reality that we're seeing, which is a fictional construction of reality, but in the same way the Florida Project sort of plays with Disneyland and all the things that that mm-hmm. are and aren't real, uh, that in that film, when Willem Dafoe shows up, it's jarring. Yes. There, well, there, there, there's an immersion that Sean Baker is obsessed with i think as an artist by placing the audience and even himself as a creator into that world so holistically uh without those training wheels without needing to baby or teach the audience step by step and i think when we're engaging with sex work specifically in the queer community which is which is you know very very common extremely common and undiscussed outside of perhaps trans experience uh, because they're the most fetishized, I would say, within the community. Um, there's a sense of, of of kind of casual action that I think most audiences would feel uncomfortable with that I think a lot of queer people who watch that film are able to relate to or find humor in. Um, I think that when we thought we think about sex work within the trans community, it's it's often coming from a place of you know, violence or trauma or desperation. And the reality is, you know, queer and trans people are valued sexually in the shadows. And, you know, in West Hollywood, where the film takes place, they have realized the power that they hold within that community. And they manipulate that power when they need to. 
And they engage with each other openly and honestly, and they inject each moment with humor and ferocity. And I, I think that that's why I was drawn to it. It doesn't try to create a sob story. The film does not revolve around, you know, um, an outside force creating trauma. It's the inner workings within that ecosystem that they've created. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It feels like it was being made now. It feels yes. like we are in this place right now, culturally, where this film would just emerge and instantly be of the moment. And it's mm -hmm. seven years old, yeah, which, exactly. or eight years old now, which I find absolutely shocking Yeah, that it doesn't, other than the phones they're using, it really hasn't aged a day. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of remarkable that Baker was talking about those issues with those characters and letting them exist and, and inform the narrative the way they do, because he works very closely with his actors to shape the story um, in, in 2015. Before yeah. any of this stuff was, you know, controversial, it was just Demimond at the time, yes. right? Yeah. And I, I also think that the the decision to shoot it on an iPhone, you know, I almost think about video games with like, you know, 8-bit or, or, you know, as a 16-bit, I think you, they, they upgrade. Um, but those kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, stylistic uh, stylistic elements of it mm. being shot on an iPhone almost make the film feel less aged when you watch it now than if it was shot in the modern way of that time. It feels, it just feels rough, gritty, and individual. Uh, and the energy from the music to the kind of visceral nature of the imagery just captured me. I also just cackled the entire time. <laughs> like, it, it's just, it's funny. It's funny. It's witty. It's catty. It's innately feminine. It, it's just a great adventure to to engage with as an audience member. Do you use it in 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 teaching? Do you use it as a as a tool, a uh, way of communication? Like how how do people respond to it now? I guess is my question. Now that it is sort of its own established thing. Well, I, th I think when a film impacts me in the complicated way that this film impacted me. Um, which I'm still trying to discover, you know, I'm still trying to understand exactly what the magic was. I don't think I can completely put my finger on it. Um, I, I reserve it to, to my own works, being an inspiration for my own works, um, you know, watching a moment and realizing why it's moved me. So, uh, or understanding why a stilted performance, you know, from a, a non-actor was so capable of creating this emotional journey for me, because when you, when you start watching the film, you know, there are line reads or moments in the first five, 10 minutes where I'm like, Ooh, is this the best take? Ooh, is this performance? But that's not the goal of the film. And I think, I think the relevance of watching people on screen fumble or say things that feel less curated or imperfect innately just allow for you as an audience member to realize that this film is going to be rough and ready. And that's something I try to instill into the students I teach. You know, having a strong concept and vision is more important than having a perfect image or the most curated narrative. Uh, and I think that the, um, the ragtag nature of this film is timeless and almost impossible to recapture. Yeah, I was wondering about that. It's, um, I mean, it speaks to a more innocent moment, too, in, in American culture, mm. just before Trump, just before sort of the legitimization of hate and and how open bigotry was suddenly cool again as yeah. it hadn't been for since maybe the 60s mm. um it's always been there there's always been tension and the self-loathing that comes out 
when people just sort of unleash their true selves always just feel so ugly to me. Mm. Um, and the film is like, it's ultimately, I think it's the most optimistic film he's made. Mm. Um, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I mean, from, from what I've seen of his work there, there's just something so celebratory about the simple journey of these two women surviving and thriving and laughing and seeking more from life. You know, one of my favorite moments from the film when she's promoting this show and we get to the bar and it's an unlikely crowd, very sparse. And we get to share a moment almost in complete silence of this, this uh, woman singing, not superbly, but singing. And we see that these characters, like many of us are seeking more just something beyond survival. And, um, and she may not have a large audience. I mean, I can relate to this, but <laughs> she has an audience and she's doing what she wants to be doing. And there's hope for more, uh, which is exciting to watch as a viewer, especially through the lens of these two characters specifically. Yeah. I, I know that the, I know that the, the casting was uh, revolutionary for the time because he, Baker had just basically set out an open call for trans performers. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the kind of thing that could go terribly, terribly wrong right now. Like if you heard about this, there'd be protesters that if it, if it broke in the wrong way in the news media yes. and the idea that this thing could just happen quietly. And also because of the time Sean Baker wasn't Sean Baker, nobody knew who yes. he was. He could work, yeah. in, he could work in relative obscurity. And then to find these these two, Rodriguez and Taylor, who are just so alive mm -hmm. and so comfortable. I, I have this whole pet theory about a, the generation of people who, who came of age with iPhones around, with mm -hmm. camera phones around, and who are just so completely comfortable as themselves in front of cameras. Yes, yes. It's going to get even worse with the generation of kids who's growing up now with TikTok and everything, like constant exposure. And this is where I sound like a grumpy old man. But <laughs> they are so natural people yeah. who have never acted before and and who are playing characters right they, mm -hmm. this is not just being yourself mm. but the negotiation and i suppose there's there's an argument about um uh not an argument but there's there's a whole backstory of being comfortable in a persona in terms of drag and trans and all of these things where you become the person you're supposed to be and um I, david cronenberg was just uh uh, sorry, uh, have you seen this thing? It was on Twitter. It's just surfaced today. There's a quote from David Cronenberg about how um, it's a fairly recent interview because it's a conversation with somebody about crimes of the future. And um, the interviewer asks him if um, when I was watching crimes and noticing its themes about the evolution and transformation of the human body, I was wondering if you were engaging at all in ongoing conversations about the transgender movement. And his response was... Um, they're taking that idea seriously. They're saying body is reality. I want to change my reality. That means I have to change my body. And they're being very brave and they're investing a lot in these changes, especially these ones that are not reversible, which most of them aren't. I say, go ahead. This is an artist giving their all to their art. And mm. that's, that's Tangerine, incredibly well, yeah. enough. I, I, I mean, I, I think that it's interesting when we analyze these characters, how these, these two extremely tenacious and powerful and strong women are living on the fringes of society, you know, and they are among the most brave in our society. You know, they're treading against the current and there is something so innately interesting about that. I mean, it relates to my own work, this idea that trans women, specifically trans women of color, have always been 
benchmarks, keystones within the community because they've had to fight the hardest and they've had to be able to endure the most. And ultimately, it's 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 to attain an existence that I think a lot of audience members or viewers of the film will say, oh, all of this so that you could live like that. But for them, it's an existence of authenticity and it's an ability to be themselves and hold power and take up space uh, and find friendships that feel authentic, uh, which I think is really, really special. I mean, I think that you mentioned something really interesting by saying that Sean Baker making this film now would be engaging in a lot of backlash, which I think is true. I mean, I even had to to bunker down for kind of the, the mosaic of racial identities and, you know, I, gender experiences within my own work, uh, even being from the community. Um, but I think that there is a really interesting discussion there about who is creating the resistance for this work and whether or not the people who are engaging willingly so in the creation of it and taking part in it uh, have the authority to decide for themselves whether or not they want to be involved in this story. Um, and I think ultimately, when we're talking about depictions in cinema, a lot of people would look at this film and say, you know, it's it's engaging with sex workers and trans bodies and it's perpetuating a stereotype. And and I hate that so innately because, you know, there is a large amount of trans people who do not engage in sex work, who have, you know, found experiences outside of that. But there is also a large population of trans women who have not. And to erase that demographic from our recorded history, because we're trying to seek a representation that is palatable or innately seen as positive to kind of heteronormative or mainstream audiences, really irks me. It really, really irks me. We are uh, colorful freaks and geeks of the world, and we engage in sex in all kinds of freaky-deaky ways. And I don't think that we should shy away from that in, in the hopes of appearing more palatable to anyone. Yeah, I've never understood the idea of a palatable stereotype, right? Mm. Like the idea that there is some middle ground that you can reach that pleases everyone, or at least makes things inoffensive. Someone will always be offended by literally anything in the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it is, I love people who come up with the examples of, well, there's this thing that bothers me and it does, it's a thing that simply doesn't exist. It's just a thing they're ready to be offended by. Yes. Um, it's having a lot of opinions about topics that they are ill-informed of. Ill-informed of and have no influence over or no contact. Mm. Like it doesn't change your life that these things that you've made up are in your head. I mean, I suppose mm -hmm. it does actually. It's, uh, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be crippling. It's gotta be a horrible way to live in the world and always be on the lookout for the next perceived slight to whatever your dominant point of view is. Um, yeah. whereas, I mean, yes, Sean Baker is a white guy with a camera. That is yeah. something you can't get away from, but where he chooses to point that camera and the people he wants to help him, the people who, whose stories he, want to tell, he wants to tell and whose lives become part of the art that he's making, mm -hmm. those things are also his choice, right? Like yes. he's, he's choosing to engage with these, these other social circles and, and gender circles. I don't even know what the terms are anymore for but what he's doing. there's an immersion. Doing. There's an yeah. immersion there. You know, it, it doesn't feel, you know, I think that if we were to watch it and it felt um, surface level, we would be able to know that. I mean, I think people are able to engage with media and understand when something is of quality, researched, um, done correctly. 
uh, and when things are not. So um, I think that understanding context, you know, of the situation specifically is very, very important. Mm -hmm. I also think that this is a theme of many of his works. You know, he had uh, a film called um, Prince, Prince on Broadway or Prince of Broadway. Uh, and that was um, an earlier film that focused on the black community in New York. And there's, there's always been an interest in this man to kind of seek these perhaps lower income uh, characters and dive, you know, really deep into their world. And I don't think that he should be chastised for that. I think that we need to respect the people who are engaging in that storytelling process and realize that it's their decision to make and that they have the capability to decide whether or not someone is authentic and well-intentioned or not. Yeah, he's been at this for 20 years. If if he was a tourist, we'd know by now, right? Mm. Like he would have gone on to direct a Marvel movie or something, some horrible yes. betrayal of his ethic. But he does seem to be inviting people in rather than framing them as um, subjects. Mm. And I think that's where Tangerine's power comes from, because it's not that he allows them their humanity, that's condescending. The mm. idea that, you know, you make a movie to to show the world this culture. No, he's just there. The mm. humanity is established and accepted. And we're just going to watch the story play out because it's a story that's worth telling. And it's it's characters who are interesting and worth following. And the, the trans aspect, other characters comment on it, right? Like there's, there's the cab driver who has his own fetish mm. and he gets, he is seen in the film as a, a sort of an outsider mm -hmm. for, for his predilections rather than uh, preying on trans characters, which is how like a more comfortable movie mm -hmm. might frame it. Absolutely. And I, I love the, the idea that the movie doesn't care if I am on board mm. because it's going to tell it's like bigger and these characters are the story. His eye, sorry, his, his point of view is the story, but the characters are the reason the film has the point of view. I don't. I don't feel like he's imposing any considerations or, or stereotypes on them. And people who come out thinking, "Oh, that movie was just about trans characters." I. I don't know why they'd make it. It's like, well, it's because they're who they are, not yeah. because of what they are. The film is moving forward regardless of whether or not you're on board. Uh, and it's yes. playing. It's playing. It's playing with with themes and ideas that. Uh, could be innately comfortable to certain audience members and to others, you know, it could be seen as as uh, humorous or heartwarming. Uh, I mean, when I watch that film, the language that they're speaking is it's not new to me. Uh, the kind of um, crass um, comments about sex or this idea of being fetishized by cab drivers. I mean, these are these are like age old themes in our world, you know, and um, I love the nuance of having this man, this kind of secondary story intertwined with a family, with a wife. Um, and, you know, you see the ripple effect of not only the obstacles of being trans in the world, but also just like wanting to love a trans woman, you know, being able to openly appreciate and seek partnership with a trans woman. You know, I think that's where the comment is. It's this idea where, you know, we're not making a comment that all trans women are sex workers, but we're talking about why society um, is so adamant about pushing them in that direction, because we're not able to see them as healthy, holistic, sexual partners.
Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about Shout Factory's new 4K restoration of The Exorcist 3, Paramount's Blu-ray release of Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and how new editions of John Frankenheimer's Black Sunday and Matthew Robbins' Dragon Slayer open a window into studio blockbuster culture of the past. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, this is what I do. I write about movies. Come check it out. And of course, Hollywood being the location where everything is for consumption, where every yes. person goes to be assimilated or destroyed I mean, in the in the other traditional arc of these stories, um, you expect that this is either a story about a rise or a fall because of mm. his choice of location. And, and I think it's also really important that in Red Rocket, a character has come back from Hollywood mm. into his small town and the films almost sort of work in concert the guy in Red Rocket couldn't hack it and came home. And here you have survivors. Mm. Like the film ends on a on an on a such a subtle but but impactful. I, I hate the word I impactful, that. but it just lands like a fist to the chest, that little gesture the of the wig. Oh, it's just so stop, beautiful. Stop. <laughs> I I you know what? That's really when the film got me. You know, I think that there were moments in the in the last bits of the film where I'm like, okay, the conflict feels like it's, it's moving forward for the sake of perhaps a narrative moment. I, mm. I'm not understanding the full intention of why, you know, she would have slept with her boyfriend and all, all of these kind of moments that I was ready to judge. And then I realized that the payoff was just a simple gesture of handing over a wig you know, a peace offering, this idea of something being so incredibly vulnerable for a character to have to give up, but her love or her friendship or her her um, her willingness to apologize was so strong that that last shot in that laundromat is just so beautiful to me. It's it's the most beautiful frame. Yeah. When I was thinking about it the first time, it's just like that sisterhood. Yes. Which, of course, is the entire argument of the film encapsulated in this tiny little moment where it would be it glimpsed from the outside, it's meaningless. Mm. But because we've spent an yes. hour and a half watching it's the two of them, it's it's not just earned, it's it's the apotheosis mm. of their of their relationship expressed yeah. instantly, wordlessly. Yeah. And, yeah, and almost, yeah, almost matter of factly too, which is so great. It's a, a transferring of identity. There's, there's so many things that you can interpret in there. And all it is, is the gesture of support. Yes. But it's, but it's beautiful. And life goes on. Like there's no pretty bow, you know, it's a, it, it gives you this understanding of a moment of peace, reflection and love before life continues and they have to continue moving forward in some context, but there's a reassured idea that they have one another you know, and that you're feeling solid within that fact, letting them go. Yeah. And in another way, too, it's a process film because it shows us everything that is involved in their existence. Right? Mm. You see, it's simply about the reality of being a sex worker and a trans sex worker in Hollywood in 2015. But the, the sort of tourism aspect of it, uh, mm. where we are tagging along with them through every aspect of their world. Yes, they're our guide. Yeah, and we see just what it means to have someone be that close to you and have and give yourself the space to trust them 
in yeah. that last shot. And it's again, it's like an uphill climb to get there, but it's so good when they when they arrive. I I I mean, even beyond just you know them trying to survive and and engaging in sex work, it's like it's also the story of an aspiring singer and mm-hmm. performer. It's the story of of a woman who is innately um innately ready to fight for what she wants and uh, wants to be loved and accepted and and uh, be given a, a partner that respects that you know it's it just it feels like there's so many there's so many uh, elements that inform the way we watch the film but the root of it is actually very simple uh, and that kind of simple storytelling is really poignant when it's done well it's the recognizability of the structure i think that makes mm. it that allows us to think we know where it's going at every turn. And then Baker just refuses to deliver the expected. He still gets us to a happy ending, which Mm. I think is wonderful. And he isn't, he's not an unconventional storyteller, but he chooses unconventional stories. And so that's, I think that's the tightrope he walks. And in Red Rocket, I don't know that he stays on the wire quite so uh, consistently, but, but this and the Florida project are these, these little perfect bubbles, universes he constructs and yeah. you can lose yourself for an hour and a half and then emerge changed. I I think that the um the world building in his work in this film in general is just it feels quite exceptional. It feels like we're falling down a rabbit hole, you know, into a, another world and I think that the setting, you know, being in LA feels so perfect for it because we're surrounded by fabrication and illusion and fantasy uh, and we're falling down that rabbit hole with with these two guides. I mean, there's um <clears throat> there's something beautiful about a film that's able to show recognizable obstacles for characters that we feel we know while also not making that the focus. You know, at the end of the film when she gets thrown uh, with urine, you know urine all over her by a passerby, you know, that's something that we're used to seeing for these demographics. But it's a small element that creates a bigger moment. Right. It's it's a piece of the puzzle to honor those obstacles without making them a focal point, because the film is not about that. The film is not about them. The film is about these two women. Yeah. And she immediately shakes it off, too. Like It's not a lasting trauma. It's either happened enough times that it doesn't have any effect or it's still just a glancing speed bump on her way to the end point, to her to uh, achieving her vision of success, whatever that will be. Yeah. And then, and it sets up, as you say, it sets up that beautiful moment that that yeah. is purely necessity, right? Like it's it's driven by circumstance, and it won't be the only moment of connection between them. But it's mm-hmm. where we choose to go, or it's where the film chooses to leave them, and so that gives you a sense of hope and a sense of optimism yeah. that things will work out. And then you have, you know, the world that it was released into versus yes. the world that we're living in now, where. Yeah. Again, like this would be, this would be revelatory now, even now to an audience, which is kind of depressing. I think so. Yeah, you know what the thing is? It's like even even now, like n- not a lot of people have seen this film, and 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 especially outside of the kind of film industry or zeitgeist, and mm. uh, it, that really trickles down to the queer population. You know, I mentioned this film to any queer person I, I meet at a party when we're talking about cinema, and it, it just doesn't breach that that barrier. Is so challenging to breach, kind of casual queer audiences engaging with work that really can speak to us. And you know, I, I'm not from West Hollywood. I'm not a trans woman, but there. 
again, there's a language and a culture that's being displayed here with the music, with the energy, with the with the lingo, with the with the cattiness and the kind of femme expression that feels innately powerful. I mean, these these women are tearing the city up. They're tearing <laughs> it up. And when she grabs the other girl by the hair and just I don't know, there's there's just something that feels so interesting to me when we're seeing characters. Uh, exert that power and take up that space. It just feels humorous and engaging, especially for a protagonist, you know, a set of protagonists that feel like they're walking a line of moral ambiguity sometimes, you know, and they're playing with fire and their their needs are sometimes selfish, but we're on that journey with them. We want them to get what they want. Oh, yeah, yeah. We have a rooting interest by the, mm. like, like 15 minutes in. Yes. Uh, and so, okay, what do people say when you bring the movie up? Is it that they have an idea of it and, and that's why they haven't seen it? Or have they simply not heard, really not They've heard not of it? not heard of it, no. I, I, I think that they're, you know, I think that there's an assumption by a lot of people in my community that the work that we're going to see is maybe the one or two queer films that breach, you know, the barriers and our standouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, there's there's a lot of lack of interest, you know. I, I think we grew up watching cinema as a means of escape and disassociation because we're watching, you know, love stories, heteronormative love stories. And listen, I know how to find my way into a story because I've had to do it so much. So I still get, you know, emotionally moved by those stories. I think that there is just the assumption that work like this is not being created, you know, and if it's being created, it's Love, Simon, or it's Moonlight. Uh, there's a range there that's kind of breaching that that zeitgeist and kind of entering it. Um, but the rest, those kind of auteur gems are really challenging to to engage with that audience. Yeah, I don't know how you fix that. Ultimately, I don't, think, I, I, mean, don't, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's going to be fixed anytime soon. I think I think it's a smaller demographic too. I mean, it's about ten percent of the population, uh, and then within that, you know, maybe five, three or five percent is really interested in this type of cinema. But I think like Paris is Burning has become a bible for for most of us as you know recorded history amongst a million complications. I'm sure, but um, that has been able to kind of live in that queer zeitgeist and uh, i wish more cinema was able to to kind of get in there because we need more references we just we need more cinema like this that is living in our memories and our thoughts Uh, we need more um we need more adventures that are reflective of us i watch queer cinema and i feel defensive at first i feel very critical and very defensive because i'm not used to being seen like that it's almost uncomfortable if i'm being honest um yeah well i was going to ask about that there is this sense now that people hmm, a lot of the how can i put this in the last couple of years there's definitely been a turn in uh film writing and modern criticism where depiction is now equivalent to endorsement in film readings, which is absolute bullshit. And the other thing is that if a film doesn't reflect the critic's exact experience, even by 5%, the whole thing is somehow invalid, which seems to me to work against the whole concept of cinema as an empathy machine, right? Like the way you posited, we watch these things to feel other feelings for other people with other people. And I don't know how we get 
out of that because this narcissism, which again, somehow feels linked to Trump, right? Like the, mm. the embrace of, and Boris Johnson and all the other stuff, like the only way to exist now is to tell people how great you are and how stupid everyone else is. And that disallows the possibility of other people existing at your level. And so why would you ever plug into a story that isn't about you? Mm. And I, and I think that we're, you know, we even see that in a lot of filmmakers, you know, I think that we're living in a society right now that is really critical about telling stories that are removed from your own. And mm -hmm. that's creating a lot of filmmakers that are essentially creating autobiographical or memoir based films. And, and I, you know, I'm not really interested in that. I'm, I'm really interested in listening to the world as it lives and breathes around me. I'm similar to Sean Baker in the sense that I love being immersed into other realities and doing the work to find the story and the characters and demystifying demystifying the camera for for its actors and performers because I'm just bored. I'm bored of seeing the same handful of of stories and you know not to be overtly specific but I think that we're moving to a time where there's a very again digestible accessible form of diverse in quotes mm -hmm. storytelling and if you breach beyond that if you play too hard with your tools you're going to be either um criticized or uh disregarded and that can be frustrating certainly frustrating when you're seeing the same groups of stories being told over and over and over again uh, because they're comfortable and because they are not going to be met with uh, you know overt criticism uh, which is something that needs, I think, needs to change. Without, without, you know, without us able to find stories outside of our own experiences, then fiction will cease to exist. And and the film has to still be a place for fantasy. Sean Baker works with his actors to find the story, to morph the character. Something that I've taken into my own work. But ultimately, there's a distance between those those individuals and the characters that they're playing and the narrative that they're engaging in. And I think that there's a power in that. I think that there's a really big power in that. And we shouldn't shun him for wanting to discover that. Nicely put. Um, and, and I'm just trying to figure out how to link this to your film, because soft feels very much like a conventional framework around a unique and specific story where you're telling a story about three kids in the big going to into the big city on a quest effectively in the first five minutes and then you just you don't abandon it exactly but that framework is our way into a story about people we wouldn't ordinarily see in movies and characters and lives with complexity that often isn't afforded to such characters mm. um right down to i don't want to spoil anything for people listening but the the slow revelation of the very different home lives of your three protagonists, which mm -hmm. becomes the sort of locus on which the whole movie turns. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think what I wanted to create, and it's interesting how the film has been marketed uh, in festivals. And even now um, it's a film about kids. It's a film about three friends who have found one another who have a common experience or a common language and they're being kids. They're discovering what sex is, what love is, what adventure is, what the city is, where they fit. And they're discovering all these things together and they're trying to survive and thrive. But the film, you know, exists in a queer 
space with queer characters, but it's marketed so heavily as a queer film. It's marketed so heavily as, you know, a diverse cast. And all of these things need to be honored. But, you know, at the core of the film, it's 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 an adventure with these three children who are trying to find their place. And and it's frustrating sometimes when that cannot be the foundation of how we're introducing these films. Because when you start creating um, descriptive language that is a barrier to some audience members, it can limit the film's reach. Uh, it's it's really It's really about me finding people who inspired me and the world that I live in and wanting to amalgamate those things uh, in cinema to create a narrative fictional film. doesn't always need to just be a, a box checked or a quota fill. Like it, it's, it's challenging because you want to talk about social topics when you're creating work like this, and it's important to do so. But I'm making a fictional film. And, you know, the death of a character or the lives of a character or the narrative device of my work is so intrinsically linked to social politics. And there's such sensitivity around these lives because of the lack of information that the world understands about them that, you know, sometimes we forget that I'm not here to give you a PSA. (laughs) Sometimes I'm just wanting to create an engaging narrative for the audience to feel something by the end of that's it it's a story (laughs) yeah but it's a story that's going to persist which is the thing that i think is important about your work and baker's work these movies will be here in 10 years or 20 years to show people what's possible Mm -hmm. like that there is even if it's fictional there is still uh, a roadmap to something that's optimistic and positive and hopeful and Not necessarily for every character, but yes. for the protagonists that we're watching, for the people we're spending time with, those lives become um, instructive is maybe a word that mm. I would use and, okay. and something, you know, like aspirational. Yeah. You, you know what? It, it, it's, it's, it's something that I've experienced mostly with, with queer audience members where they come up to me and they say, you know, I, I have a lot of complicated feelings, but I've never seen a depiction like that because it's, it's, it's showing children. And I think the discussion of transness and queerness with children, you know, when they're not of age, um, it can be uncomfortable. And I think if I was to make this film, you know, 10 years ago, it would be a completely different story. But it's, it's again, questioning this, this idea that transness and queerness are linked innately and only to sexual preference. It's mm. always sexualized. It's always sexualized. And I knew I knew I was different when I was, you know, seven years old. So I, I wasn't having sex. I wasn't discovering what that was yet. But I felt different. I had different mannerisms, different dress, different forms of communication. And I just wanted to show that. I wanted to show that without the characters needing to hide or conform because they have strength in numbers. And we have a bit of a, a kind of a bit of a an inside view a perspective where we're able to to follow that ride with them. Yeah, I mean we talked about this at the premiere at TIFF in September. The the thing that I immediately connected to is that they know who they are. They just don't know how the world works. And that's the, the more interesting conflict, right? We've seen yes. coming out stories a million hundreds times. of times. Yeah. I know. And it's always characters who are 
silenced or sheepish or made small in their environments. And, you know, I look around my community on a night out and I'm like, there's nothing sheepish or small (laughs) about us, baby. We are loud. We are colorful. And I wanted to see that ferocity in these young, very vulnerable bodies. Because when you're young like that, you feel invincible. And we sometimes lose that in coming of age stories or coming of age stories that are linked to coming out or transitioning. Uh, There's a a very kind of fragile adult mentality that's placed onto the child that I feel is not authentic to the childhood experience. Yeah. No, of course these kids are loud. How could they not be? They don't know not to be. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to discover what that was like. And I feel, I feel like we did that, which was, which was rewarding. Yeah. And I just, I'm so happy it's out there for people to find. Mm -hmm. Likewise, it can get out soon enough. I'm itching for it to, to be released fully. You know, I just want people to get their eyes on it for, 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 um, for people who love it, for people who hate it. I just want it to exist at this point. Yeah. I mean, you've been in a, if, if taking the film to a festival is like giving birth, you've been sort of in the postpartum phase, I guess, for six months. <laughs> That's a beautiful way to describe the emotional roller coaster I've been feeling, yes. Well, time to get it out. Time to, time to be done with the depression and move forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. My thanks to Joseph Amenta, whose terrific first feature, Soft, opens in Toronto this Friday, April 7th at the Review Cinema, and rolls on to Winnipeg April 14th, Calgary April 21st, and Saskatoon May 19th. You don't want to miss it. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. Joey's not on Twitter, but you can follow their movie at Level Film, all one word, and you can find Tangerine on Blu-ray from Magnolia Pictures and streaming for free on Hoopla and Tubi in Canada and Hoopla and Canopy in the U.S. It's also available for rental and sale on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it, or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies, wear a mask if you go out, get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.